The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Interra, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. By Xylem, let's solve water. By Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Can Do, providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. And by Woodard and Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. This is Session 200. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. This is episode number 200. And who better to have on the podcast for episode 200 than longtime podcast friend James Eklund. James will work his usual magic explaining what demand management is, why it's desperately needed for the Colorado River, and much more. This is just another can't-miss interview uh, ahead of you. But before we get to the interview, as normal, we begin with a hearty thank you to our sponsors, the Interra, Xylem, Black & Veatch, the American Water Works Association, Can Do, and Woodard and & Curran. And I'd like for you to do me a favor, if you would. If you work for or with any of these sponsors, please, please, please thank your boss, thank your contact at that sponsor firm, and let them know that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. It, you, it's it's amazing how far that little simple simple note of thanks or that little that you know simple act of kindness will go. And as long as you're letting sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. It would greatly appreciate it. And, of course, it will help others find out about the podcast. So thank you so much. Now it's on to our featured guest, James Eklund. So let's get that water flowing. Well, James, welcome back to the Water Values Podcast. Great to have you back on. How are you doing today? Dave, it is awesome to hear your voice. It's, uh, it, it's, it's the best. Since you last had me on, I... All those years ago, when I was with the state of Colorado, a lot's happened with both of us, and I'm excited to excited to reconnect. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I I always love talking to celebrities. You know, you've been on the front page of the New York <laughs> Times, essentially. And uh, what 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 is the update on your professional status? Let's let's start off with that. Well, I I finished. Uh, let's see. Last time we talked, I finished Colorado's water plan. Shout out to your listeners in the Colorado water community in 2015. And then signed the first Colorado River Water Management Agreement that addresses climate change. And I know we're talking about that today in 2019. And I got a chance to lead a, a global law firm's water and climate change practice. Um, and then amidst the pandemic, I turned to the real brains in my house anyway, my wife, uh, Sarah Hanlon, and said, hey, with so much uncertainty in the world, why not start our own water and policy practice, <laughs> which uh, she didn't look at me like I was crazy, actually. She she was uh, kind of the inspiration behind uh, getting uh, getting off the dime and doing something 
uh, exciting and, and maybe even frightening. Uh, and I did, I pulled the trigger on that a little over a year ago. So Eklund Hamlin is our firm and our website, it turns out eklundhamlin.com for all your water needs. And I know you have a band, Dave. Uh, so maybe you could write up a little jingle for, the, for my friend. Oh, it'll cost you. It'll cost you. Um, well, that, that's awesome. I mean, uh, kudos to you for, uh, for pulling the trigger and, and striking out on your own. That sounds exciting. Yeah, it's been, it's been really fun and, uh, get to work, uh, really focus here on the Western U S and, uh, public sector and private sector entities on, on water matters, large and small. So yeah, about, about six months ago, I, I got a chance to work with an outstanding water expert, uh, named Hannah Mink. And she started working with me, like I said, about six months ago in my spare time, I, I get to do some teaching on environmental policy at the university of Denver. And I'm looking forward to teaching some in the spring at the university of Colorado, Denver. So apologies in advance, Dave, to any students listening who were assigned <laughs> this episode for a course. <laughs> no, no problem. I, I love it. I love, uh, it's, it's ironic because I have looked and I'm not trying to swing on myself here, but I've, I've seen, the water values podcast episodes on syllabi from elementary school to, uh, um, Columbia. Uh, and so, you know, it's a, that's a pretty broad spectrum, but I think, I, I, I think professors tend to like the, the, the number one, the quality of the guests that are coming on, for example, yourself, this is your third appearance. And, <laughs> and you know, it's, it's, it's just a great, podcasts in general, not specifically the water values podcasts, are just a great way to educate yourself. It's like having a college course all by itself almost. It really is. I mean, you're, it, 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 the only regret I have is that I don't have a really nice British accent like your last <laughs> guest. Uh, Cause it, it really adds something. I think people think, Oh, that guy knows what he's talking about when, you know, you, you've got that, that nice academic, I don't know what it is about that, that UK accent, but it really does the job. Oh yeah. Yeah. You, I had to cut a bunch of my fawning over his accent. I talked about how I love to listen to Monty Python and you know, <laughs> I just, it, 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 I think it grates on my family that I, that I like Monty Python so much. Um, <laughs> but in any event, we, we have uh, big topics to cover today. As I mentioned earlier, you have been in the New York times. So this is something that's, uh, you know, so water and the drought out West are big time news in the United States. And you wrote an article earlier this year that kind of caught my eye where you called it demand management, you know, from, from my energy work, we always called it DSM or demand side management, but I, I thought it would be great to have this type of unique solution talked about in the water context. And, and so can you kind of give us, give us the background on, on what led you to, to write that article about demand management in the water space? Yeah. Well, in a, in a sentence, it's trying to control our own destiny or wanting to control our own destiny on a river that is incredibly complex and has a great deal of history. And uh, maybe that would be a good place to kind of start diving in would yeah. be a quick, quick background on the Colorado river uh, for, for your listeners. And, and, you know, if you're listening on a, 
on Apple Podcasts, you can just fast forward if you want. If you if you if you're uh, if you've already heard the Colorado River and you know about it, and I know a lot of your your listeners do, uh, but your your folks on the Mississippi might quibble with me, but I view this uh, the Colorado as the hardest working river in the nation. That it, it drains a basin that's over twenty you know two hundred forty five thousand square miles. It serves forty million people in seven states, uh, in numerous sovereign American Indian tribes, uh, the two nations, I mean, Mexico has two states that, uh, that receive Colorado River water. It's fitting that it also produced the first or the grandmother, if you will, of all water apportionment compacts. Uh, but James, I thought water in the West was a distributed was all distributed by some draconian law of seniority based water rights. Well, Dave, that was you, right, Dave? My impressions aren't they, they aren't very good. <laughs> but I should have done that in a British accent. Uh, well, let me tell you the story of the Laramie River that starts in Colorado and flows north into the proud state of Wyoming. In the early 1900s, we in Colorado wanted to divert a large portion of that river into the South Platte Basin, where we had a few more acres to work with than in the North Platte, uh, which is only a small basin in Colorado. The problem was that senior water users on the Wyoming side of the line didn't like our idea very much. And they they used the seniority-based prior appropriation water law just like we did. Well, Wyoming sued Colorado, and cases between states go straight to the U.S. Supreme Court, where the court decided that if both states used the seniority system, then that's what they'd use to settle disputes across state lines. And Well, on the little Laramie River, no big deal, but Water that starts in Colorado as snow eventually flows to 18 downstream states in Mexico. So if this decision of the highest court in the land was applied to, let's say, the Colorado River, now we have a problem because California was developing much more quickly than we were or would. Uh, therefore, uh, if, if that were the the doctrine that was applied across state lines, we'd have they would have all the senior water rights and we'd have all junior water rights. So we had to do some quick thinking because the old saying that I grew up with, uh, my grandfather said anyway, it's better to be upstream with a shovel than downstream with a lawyer. Well, that that no longer was going to work. Uh, luckily, we had a sharp water lawyer named Delph Carpenter who thought of the compacts clause of the U.S. Constitution as a solution. At the same time, the lower basin needed a nod from the federal government to construct the largest reservoir in the country with Hoover Dam. Congress wasn't going to give them that nod unless the states agreed on how much water each would get. So the states came to the negotiating table and crafted a compact that was signed in 1922. Since we couldn't get an agreement on what each state individually should receive in terms of water, we did the next best thing. And we cut the river basin in two at a, at a point called Lee Ferry, Arizona. Everything Southwest of that point would henceforth be known as the lower basin and everything Northeast of that point would be, uh, would be the upper basin. 
And so at, at, at Lee Ferry, the lower basin negotiated a provision that prohibits the upper basin from, and this is the term as it is in the compact, that 1922 compact, it prohibits the lower upper basin from causing the flow of the river to drop below a 10-year average of 75 million acre feet of water. So that's the that's the obligation that we have as upper basin states. And what are the upper basins? They're Colorado, they're New Mexico, they're Utah, and they're Wyoming. Those are the four upper basin states, lower basin states are California, Arizona, and Nevada. That's the background of the Colorado River. And um, we are seeing it fail in front of our collective eyes. It is a system that has been uh, hardworking, yes, managed very strictly, yes, but uh, we are seeing the impact of climate change in a very pronounced way on the reservoirs and what they're capable of uh, providing in terms of storage. So it's interesting. You indicated at the top that you you said, "Hey, we're going to talk about climate change today." I was kind of coming into this thinking we're going to talk about demand management, but I but I think what what we're we're both talking about the same thing. You're talking about because because of climate change, you think demand management is is a solution, and we'll get into that later. Yeah, but 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 how is yeah. how much the climate changing to to bring about the need for demand management? In yeah, so we split the basin in, into, like I said, and, and the upper basin is entitled to seven and a half million acre feet, and the lower basin is entitled to use seven and a half million acre feet, just just like us. And then later, Mexico negotiated for one and a half million acre feet. If you add all that up, seven and a half plus seven and a half plus one point five, you get sixteen point five million acre feet. So if you have that amount to play with in a year, everyone's happy. And back when they negotiated the compact, there was about 18 million acre feet showing up on average. So the apportionment numbers were reasonable. Flash forward to today, and we're closer to 10 to 12 million acre feet in an average year, and the math just doesn't work. So demand management is, is, is our response to that dynamic where we're not, we're using more out of the system than is coming in on a reliable basis. And we have to do something in order to, uh, to change that uh, supply demand imbalance. Uh, demand management is basically managing your demands. So you use less water and more of that water that you otherwise would have consumed makes its way into a storage vessel that means the entire system is more healthy. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting that the, the the compact makers they they probably thought they allowed for a, enough of a dip in flow that it wouldn't go down below the sixteen and a half because you said there was about eighteen or so when they uh, when they did the compact, mm-hmm. and it just didn't account for dipping under the the lowest possible flow that that was actually going to be needed to apportion. Mm-hmm. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, they didn't. They just didn't uh, model or have in their suite of experience uh, a millennium type drought like they saw in Australia, or you know, they just they they 
figured, hey, yeah, there will be fluctuations. It'll go up and down. There will be droughts. There will be flood years. But, it, uh, you know, they, they looked at the map and said, hey, if we create the two largest reservoirs in the nation, we should be able to ride out the the peaks and valleys of the of the hydro of the hydrograph. So let's just let's just go ahead and build those. And that ended up being Hoover Dam and and Glen Canyon Dam. And so you got Lake Mead and Lake Powell as the two largest reservoirs in the country. And those function in a way that allows the lower basin states, again, California, Arizona, and Nevada, to receive seven and a half million acre feet at minimum every single year. And they have developed systems of agriculture, of municipal use, of industrial use that are predicated on seeing that amount of water every year at minimum. In the upper basin, we don't have the same dynamic because the reservoir that sits up above us is our snowpack. And because climate change has worked its uh, draconian magic on, on that snowpack, we are uh, feeling the, the brunt of climate change because, again, we don't have the, the reservoir storage up above us. Um, but as the lower basin is seeing, and as we're going to talk about, I'm sure, that the uh, – the luxury of having all of that volume of water sitting up above you uh, to help you through the dry times is you can't take that for granted anymore. And the bathtub ring that shows up around those reservoirs is, uh, is the best uh, example of uh, or the, the best uh, visual that you can have of why the system is not working the way uh, the framers or the founders or the you know compact negotiators thought it would. So in terms of having less water available, what has that meant for users of, of water in the Colorado upper and lower basins? Yeah, in the upper basin, you know, we've lived with dry years and some part of Colorado is always in a dry year. Every year, there's always somebody that is under what we call water administration, where we're turning somebody off, uh, somebody, you know, a senior user is calling out a junior user, and there's just not enough water for every user to take what they need. So we've been doing it that way for, for uh, you know, since before statehood, actually. And um, we're used to it. Uh, in the lower basin, they're not quite used to that. When there's a shortage in the lower basin, they really get nervous because they, again, they have those two big reservoirs up above them that have acted as a buffer. So they never really feel the downturn in hydrology in real time. It's always offset by, uh, in this case, uh, two decades. So, you know, 2003, we had a, a really bad drought, but we went into that drought with uh, really full reservoirs. And we are going into this uh, you know, just kind of continuing this drought, uh, this 20 year drought and, and we don't have full reservoirs. So they're, they're starting to look at the, the, uh, the, those peaks and valleys of water, uh, supply as a real threat. And that's why in 2019, we got together and negotiated, a, a new path forward that would acknowledge that the system is 
not the system that we uh, it's not it's not our grandfather's Colorado River. And so we need to do something different in, turn, in terms of a management regime. So can you talk about that Colorado River drought contingency plan and, and how demand management fits in it? Yeah, less water, uh, you know, spurs is the mother of invention and and innovation and creativity. And in the lower basin, they've been managing demands and banking conserved water and Lake Mead for over a decade now. So they've been doing demand uh, demand side management, as you said. Uh, as a result of their efforts, Lake Mead is 35 feet higher than it would be otherwise. In the upper basin, in 2019, we said, hey, if banking water works for you, let's make it work up here too. And we formed the demand management account in Lake Powell. So we'd have an incentive to bank it. Until until 2019, if you had conserved water and sent it to Lake Powell, like my great-great-grandparents homesteaded from Norway in 1888 and uh, on the tributary of the Colorado River. And if, if our... Uh, cow-calf operation would have turned water down the system past our head gate and down and had that water go down to Lake Powell in sense, in, in, in essence, conserving that water, there would have been a, uh, no incentive to do that uh, prior to 2019 because the moment that water would hit Lake Powell, it would become system water. And that would be factored in when releasing water to the lower basin. So there was actually a disincentive to conserve water in the upper basin. In 2019, we changed that with the drought contingency plan that we signed, which is among all seven states. And uh, there's federal law. So the U.S. Congress uh, took action, uh, passed both houses, and the president signed it that year. Uh, And it said, if you conserve water, it now has a, ha- a safe harbor to live in in Lake Powell. And that was the first time we had ever had kind of a, a, a place for that water to, to, um, to live without generating potentially a larger release of water down to the lower basin. And the reason that's significant, uh, Dave, is because Lake Powell's really functioned as the upper basin's insurance policy against uh, calls for more water from the lower basin by virtue of that uh, that flow requirement that I alluded to at the top of the of the show. So, um, you know, when does all this happen? What what in terms of like a deadline? What are we looking at? Um, I thought we'd get after this right away. I thought we okay. We passed in 2019. We we signed the drought contingency plan. Went through Congress. Uh, signed by the president without a tweet, which was a miracle. And, uh, and I thought, all right, we're off to the races. The, uh, because the writing was on the wall that the system was going to continue to decline. But we haven't, we still haven't banked a single drop of water in that account in Lake Powell. And why do you ask? It's, it's because everyone wants a demand man- management program to be designed a certain way. But because we're a geographically and hydrologically diverse state, we're having a hard time agreeing on the details. And I've, I've done this before. This is my, not my first rodeo, uh, as you know, uh, with Colorado's water plan. The difference here is that the, you know, with Colorado's water plan, we were addressing a relatively slow moving crisis that wasn't 
really supposed to hit us in earnest until 2030 or so. The pace of the Colorado River's decline has caught even the most pessimistic water wonks by surprise with with Colorado's water plan, we had the luxury of time and the largest civic engagement process our state had ever seen. With the Colorado River situation, the clock is decidedly not our friend and real leadership is required. Leadership that I'm sorry to say hasn't stepped up in, at least in the upper basin yet. So uh, hopefully that'll change and um, as we move forward. Yeah. So what, what, what needs to happen? What, I mean, you indicated that uh, everyone wants to kind of designed a different way. The demand management program designed a different way. What are the, under the Colorado River drought contingency plan, what are the actual steps needed to accomplish those bank accounts, so to speak? Yeah. So what has to happen is they, each of the states gets uh, to call the shots on how they administer their water. And the compact made that very clear, uh, both the 22 compact and uh, in 1948, the upper basin states, you know, we didn't sue each other. We behaved like adults up here, uh, Dave. And and we we went ahead and um, and did another uh, compact that we all agreed on that says that, you know, here's how we're going to divide the river among, you know, the consumptive use among each of the states. And here's how we're going to deal with a compact uh, curtailment situation if we have to do that. And it, it was you know, fairly clear that the states are in charge of their water uh, management and water administration. So the, the states have to, step one is the states have to develop programs that uh, essentially they where they recognize that the water conserved is going to live in this account in Lake Powell. And the way you do that is you basically have to pay senior water users to let that water go down the river and not use it on their fields or with their, whatever they're growing. So um, that, that dynamic means that they need to be compensated for that because they're not growing a crop if they're not raising a commodity. So they, they need to be paid. And so it's got to be compensated. It needs to be temporary because one of the things we in Colorado, and we pointed it out uh, time and time again in Colorado's water plan is we can't have buy and dry at the scale that we have seen it over the last 50 years if we want Colorado and the other states, I'm sure, share this sentiment uh, to be the state that we all want it to be uh, to, to pass on to our kids and our grandkids. So if we're going to do something different, uh, then, then buy and dry of irrigated agriculture. And by the way, what I mean by that, it buy and dry is a pejorative phrase intended to be uh, uh, kind of a negative phrase because it, it is essentially when a municipal user buys water rights from a senior ag use and then transfers that water and dries the land, that's buy and dry. And we looked at that when we were as a state trying to uh, figure out where we were headed with our water policy and said, well, we, we cannot do that at the same scale we've been doing it. Uh, we've got to change that with alternative uh, 
transfer mechanisms, meaning we've got to make it easier for a farmer or rancher to stay in agriculture in in the long term by being able to sell their or lease their water in the near term. And if we do that and we're effective at doing that, then more families stay in agriculture and stay in production uh, because they don't they aren't faced with this binary draconian choice of do I sell the the entire, you know, do I sell my assets, which my biggest, my most valuable one's probably my water rate. Do I sell that water rate? Uh, or do I and, and retire or move to the city? Or do I uh, try and make a go at at farming or ranching when my commodity prices are fluctuating and it's it's a it's a tough uh, you know the margins are already uh, razor thin. Instead of just those two choices, we needed them to have another choice to stay in agriculture, but actually realize some of the value that their water right, their most valuable asset holds, and realize it now, not in 50 years when they decide to retire or, you know, whenever that, that point comes. So it, 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 uh, it made sense to make it uh, a demand management program and alternative transfer mechanism and, and abide by some of the elements that we uh, all recognize in Colorado as being value added. Uh, So temporary compensated voluntary, we didn't want, the you know state of Colorado taking water uh, because they felt like they had to in a crisis uh, to keep taps on and keep uh, municipal entities out of uh, boil order situations. We we wanted we wanted that to be a voluntary program, willing by willing uh, leasers and willing lessors and willing uh, lessees, uh, and uh, we we also wanted it to be equitable because you know, the the biggest loser in a buy and dry transaction is the community. And because uh, the farmers or ranchers getting paid for their water and the municipality is getting uh, an asset that they need. And uh, but the community is kind of left out of that transaction. So demand management, we thought, well, maybe there's a way to make uh some inroads in the equity uh, element of a alternative transfer mechanism. And, uh, and so that those were the, kind of the elements of a demand management program. And we kind of got to those, uh, those elements pretty quickly uh, right after the legislation was signed. And we had a safe Harbor in Lake Powell for that water to live in. And all we needed to do was create a program. We had the elements, the basic uh, fundamentals of that program ironed out and we just, we can't get to an agreement. I think, uh, you know, there's an absence of willingness to kind of put our shoulder to the wheel, like we did with the water plan and, fight through some of those obstacles and, and reach consensus. Instead, we're just kind of locked. We've all gone gone to our proverbial corners and uh, we haven't come out to the middle of the ring and just kind of settled it. Uh, And uh, while we remain in our corners, no program gets done and we can't at scale do the thing that, you know, that was certainly the intent when, when we signed the drought contingency plan in 2019, we really wanted to create something that was actionable and 
could bend the curve at, at, at Lake Powell. And what I mean by bend the curve is the elevation of that reservoir. We wanted to keep it from going below the catastrophic level that we call minimum power pool. And I can go on and on about that, but that's a, that, that's what we were trying to do. And, um, you know, it's been frustrating that we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Well, can you, can you talk about it? So you say the private right, uh, private water rights holders, uh, would be compensated for their rights. So that's, this isn't, uh, so private, private entities aren't necessarily banking their water. It's because they're being compensated. It's the sovereign, it's the state that would be banking water. If, if we ever reach an agreement on this. That's correct. There are no, no private, uh, accounts in Lake Powell that, uh, private entity or, you know, my family or one of my clients, you, you can't, you wouldn't have your, uh, tag on that water, but your state would get credit for that. And, uh, you know, that, that would be the hope would be that you would incent, uh, people to conserve water and send it down to Lake Powell in at scale so that your state got the, and the upper basin as a whole got the benefit of having, uh, avoided the crisis elevation. Yeah. What's the rationale for, for just having sovereign states? Well, I think it's because if you, if you, um, go back in the kind of the water jurisprudence again with the U S Supreme court, there was a case in Colorado called the Hinderleiter case. It was named after one of our state engineers, uh, who was sued by a fellow Coloradan who uh, said, Hey, I've got a private water right here. And you, uh, went and signed some compact that, you know, that was your business. I, I wasn't at the table there. And, and uh, that shouldn't apply to me. I, and, and you can't curtail my water right because you signed some compact, some agreement with some downstream state. And um, the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, no, if your sovereign government signs off on on uh, a compact uh, on, on water or another any other topic uh, that they are uh, that's that's usually consented to by the Congress and, and that turns it into federal law. It's state law and it's got supremacy. And so you've got to abide by what your sovereign has signed. And, um, you know, that individual water user probably didn't like that result, but in, in, uh, the grand scheme of things, all of the state benefits by having, uh, the ability to negotiate these compacts, because remember, if we, if we say, okay, we don't, we don't want the compact to bind us. And, and that's not my compact. That's the state of Colorado. Some bureaucrat negotiated that thing, not me. Well, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty short-sighted attitude because without that compact, the doctrine of prior appropriation would apply across state lines and odds are, some downstream user was there before you were. So you wouldn't be protected. In essence, it's the sovereign's uh, standing uh, as a, as a government, as a, a democratically elected government that we allow 
to speak on our behalf. And, and that's, that's why the water that goes into Lake Powell, it really has, uh, uh, the state flag on it, uh, and, and not an individual user on it, uh, because we, we want all of the state to benefit from, uh, water that, that is conserved and sent down there, not just some one entity that, that might be able to pay for it better than somebody else. Yeah. A lot of lessons in there too, from, from that explanation that, that your individual rights flow from your government. It is not, uh, it's not an individual free for all there. Um, right. Yeah. So, well, James, you've been absolutely terrific. I always learn just such a tremendous amount whenever we speak. And so I, I'm grateful to call you a friend. Uh, but before we sign off for this recording, what's, what's the leave behind message you Hey, Dave, thank you so much again for the opportunity. So listen, with all the doom and gloom about climate change and water, it's easy to feel fatalistic about the challenges we face and to throw up your hands in frustration. But we can and must meet these challenges. But what can you do? This is a sophisticated listenership you have here, Dave, uh, on the public sector front. Tell your water officials that wishful thinking isn't enough. It's not enough to say climate change is really hard. So please don't blame us and don't expect us to do anything about it. I've even seen some elected officials go so far as to try to manufacture villains to pit one sector against another. Enough of that. This is an all hands on deck moment. We need big solutions. We already know work. And one of those solutions is paying senior agricultural water rights to conserve water. And that means paying farmers and ranchers so they can stay in production agriculture and can afford to transition to regenerative practices. That in turn helps us solve climate change. This is already happening successfully in parts of the West, and it needs to happen in states like mine. Now, let me speak directly to the private sector. And I mean everyone from my mom and dad and our cow-calf operation clear up to the C-suite at Goldman Sachs. You are critical to the American water story and solutions, and we need you to examine how do you operate your business through a water lens. For corporates, that means working water into your ESG objectives. Case in point, Google just set a goal to replenish 20% more water than they use by 2030. The financial industry has a role to play. It can invest in water by investing in American agriculture. And when we do that, we're also helping to finance this regenerative agriculture revolution that I believe is part of the climate solution. That's it for me, Dave. You know, I only listened to two podcasts, this one, and may I elaborate with JB Smoove, and they're both excellent. Yours has a little more swearing, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, thanks again for providing me such a a platform and a a tremendous service to the water community with this podcast, and and be well, my friend. Oh, thanks, James. Uh, Terrific, terrific leave behind. Really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. For those who want to find out more about you, uh, and uh, Eklund Hanlon, where can they go to get that information? Yeah, so Eklund is a is a, a funny Scandinavian spelling E K L U N D, and then Hanlon is uh, a nice Irish name H A N L O N, and they're just shoved together. Eklundhanlon.com is where you can find me. And uh, Dave, I I I really appreciate uh, being able to chat with you again. Yeah, it's always great when we get together. I love our conversations, both before the recording, during the recording, and after the recording.
Likewise. <laughs> Thanks again for coming on, James. We'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. All right. Bye. Bye. Well, fantastic interview by James explaining in layman's terms how the Colorado River works, how climate change has impacted it, and why demand management is so important to the Colorado River's future. I'd love to know what you thought about the interview. Please check out the show notes for this page, uh, for this episode. Uh, just you know, Google the Water Values Podcast, click the first link that comes up. That's the, our home on the web with Bluefield Research. Uh, just You can also sign up for the newsletter on that site. You can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values and tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com. It'd be great to hear from you. Thank you again for tuning in to this episode number 200 and a huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, sponsors of the Water Values Podcast for the 2021 season include Interra, Xylem, Black & Veatch, the American Water Works Association, Can Do, and Woodard and & Curran, all great market-leading firms and organizations, and it's so great to have them supporting the Water Values Podcast and the thought education and water leadership that we try to bring to the market. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.